Is there any way we can have an honest conversation? Nobody seems to want to listen. I know what I want to say, but everyone will get mad. I just don't want to get into it. How am I supposed to know if I'm right or wrong? I'm so tired of talking about this. Nobody knows what they're talking about. I feel so misunderstood. Christ Church. Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Are you all glad to be alive this morning? Let's clap our hands and give God praise for the gift of life here in the auditorium and those who are in the e-church in your homes and wherever you are gathering together for worship today, we give God praise for the opportunity to gather And while we give God praise for the opportunity to gather ourselves together, uh, I want to invite you to join me in giving God praise for your senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Dan Meyer. What an amazing ministry gift he is. And we thank God for him and for his wife and family, as well as all those who serve alongside him. So many of your pastors are here in the auditorium this morning, and we give God praise for those here and those who are in the sanctuary and those who are everywhere, as well as those who are serving in visible ways today, those who are serving behind the scenes. Were we not blessed by the musicians and the worship leaders who led us into God's presence? We give God praise for everyone and for you, the precious people of God. We greet you in the only name that counts, and that is the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I would invite you now to join me in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, it is Israel's song book. I invite you to join me in the 89th Psalm. The Psalms don't have chapters, so it's not Psalm chapter 89. It is just Psalm number 89. And I'm going to read in your hearing just part of verse number 14. I'll read it from the Christian Standard Bible Translation. Hear the word of the Lord. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Stop right there. The Lord had a blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Let's pray together. Eternal God, we pause now once again to give you thanks and praise for your goodness and for your kindness. Your love is so amazing. Your grace is so all-encompassing. Your faithfulness is trustworthy and true, and we give you praise this morning. As we turn now our attention to your word, we confess that your word is still a lamp to our feet and a light unto our pathway. And so we pray that you will speak to our hearts now through your word. Bless this preacher to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. The people of God say amen. Amen. For the time that we have to share together in this sermonic conversation, I've been led to share from the subject the genius 
of the and. The genius of the and. Many of us are familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching the disciples how to live out their righteousness in the world. He's giving them practical guidance on how to live the life in God. And so he teaches them, love your neighbor, not just the neighbor you like, love the neighbor you don't like. Love love your enemies, not just your friends. He's teaching them, when you give to the poor, don't give for applause. Don't give so your name can land on a donor wall or on a webpage. Give to the poor out of an abundance of the grace that God has given you in secret. Don't let the left hand and the right hand know what the other is doing. This practical teaching points us to the fact that righteousness in our hearts does no good if righteousness does not come out in our actions. And so Jesus goes on to teach them to pray and He's teaching them to pray in a way that ensures their prayers are aligned with the heart of God. Jesus is not teaching them to pray because they've never prayed before. These were observant Jewish men who prayed regularly. Jesus is teaching them to pray in such a way that their intentions are aligned with God's intentions. And so I should probably pause right here and talk to someone who's worried about your prayers not being answered in the way that you wanted them to be answered. And it could just be that God has not responded in the way you wanted God to respond because your prayers didn't sound like what God wanted you to pray. In other words, not saying you have to have some sort of theological eloquence in order to pray prayers that God will hear, all I'm saying is God wants to answer prayers that are aligned with God's word. If you pray in God's will, God will answer your prayers because God is faithful to his word. God is not a man that he should lie, not the son of man that he should repent. If he spoke it, it'll come to pass. So if you're praying in the word, God has no choice but to answer And many of us are finding ourselves not praying the word of God. Jesus is teaching them, you should pray according to the will of God. And so when you pray, pray like this. Say, our Father who is in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is giving them not a mindless and mechanical formula to recite every Sunday on repeat. What Jesus is giving them is a model for prioritizing God's priorities. Jesus is helping them, and by extension helping us, to resist the temptation to seek our principles and our purposes against and above what God would care about. Jesus is helping them, helping us to resist the temptation to conform to the spirit of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because as kingdom citizens, as kingdom people, under the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ, we should be seeking the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth as it is 
in heaven, which means that we are called to import the kingdom of God. We are called to seek the kingdom of God, the culture of heaven, the values of heaven, the vision of our God. We are called as the body of Christ to bring this to the world. We are called to function by the power of the Spirit of God as something of a spiritual corporation. The body of Christ, the corpus of Christ is to function as a spiritual corporation. And I believe it was Jim Collins, that great management thinker who wrote in his book, Built to Last, that highly visionary corporations are ones that have learned how to resist the tyranny of the or and embrace the genius of the and. Collins says that instead of being enslaved to either or thinking, that these truly visionary corporations are ones that are able to liberate themselves by the power of the and. And I believe this principle applies just as much to the kingdom of God. Now, don't worry. Don't, don't get nervous. I can feel someone rising up with a little tension. You're trying to say, well, listen, Dr. Pierce, I appreciate this and, but some stuff just does not go together. Oil and water don't mix. I mean, are you trying to tell us that everything goes together just because you sprinkle the magic word and? No, I'm not. Some things we cannot and should not try to reconcile. Some things don't belong together. They're either or propositions, like you're either walking in darkness or you're walking in light. Either you're walking by sight or you're walking by faith. Either you worship money or you worship God. Like, you, you can't. Mix all that together with an and. It's a beautiful and powerful conjunction, but it's not going to do it all. Uh, we, we cannot be loyal to the elephant or the donkey and at the same time be loyal to the lamb. Like, it's, that, that's an either or. Some things we can't just mix. Either you're worshiping a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who's got an NRA card in his wallet and an American flag lapel pin on his suit, or you're worshiping the brown-skinned Jewish Jesus of the Scriptures who was a political refugee, who was born in a manger, who was executed unjustly by the European empire at the age of 33. You, you can't worship both of those. Only one we can worship at a time. We, we either serve a Jesus who's a chaplain to the wealthy and to the powerful or a Jesus who came to preach good news to the poor, deliverance to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty, to set free those who are oppressed. Some things, you're right, we can't just reconcile with an and. Some things are an either or kind of proposition. But then there are some times when we can and I would submit we must embrace the genius of the end. You all know it. 
peanut butter and come on church now if there's anybody who's confused about that you can come down for Christ Church in five after the service and the pastoral team will help you to make sense of this this is God's will for your life peanut butter and jelly faith and works worship and witness, love of God and love of neighbor, reading the Bible and reading the newspaper. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, of uh, it's a 1963 piece in Time magazine about Swiss theologian Karl Barth and what he's admonishing young theologians in this piece to do is to read the Bible and the newspaper. He says, take your Bible and your newspaper and read them both. But interpret the newspaper from your Bible. In other words, we must attend to the vertical first, but once we have, it'll have implications for how we deal with the horizontal. In other words, we can focus on the spiritual, but we also have to focus on the social. We can focus on eschatological, but we also have to focus on the existential. It is the genius of the and that we find at work in our text in Psalm 89. The psalmist in Psalm 89 is wrestling with the apparent contradiction of what happens when you feel like God's will in heaven isn't being done on earth. Psalm 89 is not just the voice of a single individual. Psalm 89 is a community lament, meaning that sometimes God does not just view us in an individual sense. God also views us in a collective sense. It is this genius of the and we find here as the psalmist is wrestling with the despair and difficulty and chaos and challenge of what we deal with when what God has promised doesn't feel like it's happening. When we sing, great is thy faithfulness, but then after church it feels like God has abandoned us. And in the midst of this disorientation, in the midst of this confusion, the psalmist extols the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness is part of God's character. There is no God without faithfulness. You can't understand God if you don't understand that God's loving kindness is an essential part of God's character. And as he unfolds God's character, he says in verse number 14 of this beautiful choral hymn, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Not righteousness or justice. Righteousness and justice. This is a place where many contemporary Christians struggle because we're often bound by the tyranny of the or. It's either personal and moral righteousness or biblical 
social justice. It's either personal piety and acts of charity or God's vision for the reconciliation and redemption of all creation. We, we are fine with the spiritual part. But some of us try to get theologically fancy and suggest that the spiritual part is sacred, but the social part is secular. But let me encourage us to recognize that that is not biblical. In Psalm 24, you all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The next Psalm opens up by saying, the earth is the Lord's. The fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Which means that if the world and all that are in it belong to God, then there is no such thing as an area of life that God can't claim. God can claim what's going on in your heart and soul, and God can claim what's going on in the culture. The genius of the and is God's idea. And here we find righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. These two words come from the Hebrew words tzedek and mishpat. And these two words together cannot be separated. The English gives us righteousness and justice. But the English language has a degree of poverty here because it doesn't really fully convey the depth of meaning. We can't take righteousness and justice. We have to look at these ideas together because these two words, sedek and mishpat, appear in the scriptures together over 30 times. Not to mention the countless hundreds of times they have appeared in the rabbinical wisdom writings of the centuries. We know, brothers and sisters, that these words belong together like peanut butter and jelly. That these ideas cannot be extricated from one another. Personal rightness and collective rightness go together. Whether it's in our hearts, whether it's in our relationships, or if it's in our institutions. God cares about human flourishing, not just spirit, but soul and body. God cares about our spiritual well-being. God cares about our psychological and mental well-being. And God cares about our physical and material well-being too. And so the best way we can mash up these ideas and link them together in the way that the word of God intends is one phrase, social justice. Social justice. That is what we get when we see God's vision in this text. God's justice is a justice that uproots systems that are rigged in favor of the powerful and undermine the flourishing of the powerless. Walter Storff said that the powerless aren't just disproportionately more vulnerable to injustice. They're also disproportionately more likely to be victims of injustice because they lack the financial and social capital to defend themselves. Now, I must hasten to add that 
this vision of justice that God not only articulates but is defined by is not an anti-wealthy or anti-powerful people kind of vision. He's just radically in favor of those whose flourishing and thriving keeps being undermined generationally and structurally by systems that profit from their oppression, which means that you and I can't blissfully turn a blind eye to the conditions that undermine human flourishing. We cannot turn a blind eye to racism. We cannot turn a blind eye to human trafficking. We cannot turn a blind eye to sexism. We cannot turn a blind eye to ableism. We can't turn a blind eye to ageism. Now you may say, well, why are we talking about race? And why are we talking about sex? And why are we talking about systems of inequality? Well, I'll tell you, talking about the system isn't the problem. The system itself is the problem. We, we like to paint a picture of pseudo-unity. And so we just hide everything. And if we just put it out of sight, then we'll be able to smile and be happy. But the reality is that doesn't solve the problem. Talking about the condition is not the problem. Who among us goes to the doctor for a diagnosis? And as the doctors are about to pronounce the diagnosis, we say, wait, doc, don't tell. If you tell me what's wrong, that will make me sick. The diagnosis is not the issue, it's the illness that's the issue. And shedding God's light on the issue is the first step to healing because you cannot heal what you conceal. You can never fix what you're unwilling to face. I have to add here that this is not just a vision of modern philanthropy. Modern philanthropy is about giving people money and resources just to the point where they stay in the humiliating cycle of needing to come back. This is not God's vision of justice. God's vision of justice is not that we engage in self-congratulatory philanthropy, but instead that we make society work in such a way that people are free to flourish without our largesse so they can pursue opportunity on their own and only need the help of God. God's vision of justice and wholeness in the world is spiritual and social. Just as in Isaiah's day, when King Rehoboam, who was widely recognized as one of, if not the single most wicked king in the history of Israel. Rehoboam is oppressing women, mistreating them, taxing the poor way too much, favoring the rich. And Isaiah noted that it was the people of God's responsibility to stand in the gap 
and be repairers of the breach. This breach is now a little bit bigger than one you can stick your finger in and plug. It requires all of us. It requires every single one of us to stand in the gap and repair the breaches that facilitate suffering in our time. The marginalized and disenfranchised, the ones who we often feel good about supporting but leaving in their condition, they're not the ones who are broken. The systems that are perpetuating their situations are broken. And maybe if there's anybody who's broken, it's those of us who don't have eyes to see. The brokenness is not in those individuals. The brokenness is in the systems that perpetuate their conditions, that enforce their oppression generation after generation. And you say, well, that's nice. That's all Old Testament. You know, we, I thought we were the New Testament church. Now, now, now folks get all theological with you. Oh, you know, well, you know, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And so if you can't find that in the New Testament, I'm out. It's cool. Luke chapter 3. In Luke, which comes after Matthew and Mark, which comes after the Old Testament, we find John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus' cousin, Jesus' forerunner. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This is John the Baptist who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary brought Jesus by. So John the Baptist knows what it feels like to be in the presence of God. John the Baptist is preaching repentance. His message is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and John the Baptist goes into the wilderness and preaches this, preaches this message. And the people who are hearing him say, what do we do now? I've heard the gospel truth. What do we do now? And John the Baptist did not say, well, once you get baptized, sign the volunteer card after service and everything will be okay. John the Baptist did not say, go volunteer in the children's ministry and Jesus will give you extra brownie points. Though all of these things are wonderful. John the Baptist says to them, share food and clothing with people who are without. John the Baptist tells those who are in power, don't exploit your power to extract wealth and benefits from those who are poor. He tells those who are in positions where they are responsible for maintaining public safety and welfare, police, military, and other such like. He says, don't go into communities where there are poor people and then occupy their community, intimidate them, and pillage them. This is in the Bible. Read Luke 3. I'm going to read it for you. Because... Some of y'all are like, this can't be true. Luke chapter 3, 
Here's what he says, verse number 14. Some soldiers also questioned John the Baptist. What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. In verse 13, he tells the tax collectors, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. In other, in other words, don't exploit your position of power to extract benefit from others who can't defend themselves. This is what John the Baptist tells these people after he preaches repentance. Because he knows that repentance, a changed mind, the Greek word here is metanoia, a change of mind. John knows that a changed mind is going to result in changed behavior. A changed spirit will change society. Those who've been touched by God, whose hearts have been enlightened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, will be committed to healing brokenness. Brokenness in spirits, brokenness in relationships, and brokenness in society. Now, as I prepare to take my seat, I, I want to just personally give God praise that God cares about each and every one of us. God cares about you. God cares about me. And God cares about us. God cares about your flourishing and our flourishing. God cares about each and every one of us because God is wise enough to embrace the genius of the end. God cares about us so much that he sends Jesus to the world because he not only cares, but he sees the condition that we're in. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. God sees the condition that we're in and is willing to make it right. The Bible says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and was obedient to the death of the cross. How did he get to the cross? He was marched from judgment hall to judgment hall because the European Roman Empire was intimidated by him. And so what do they do? They allow the criminal justice system to unjustly sentence an innocent man to die. So Jesus is marched from judgment hall to judgment hall and he dies on Good Friday at Calvary, he dies holding the genius of the end. He dies for you and for me. He dies for the rich and the poor. He dies for the wealthy and the disadvantaged. He dies for black, white, and brown. He dies for the prostitute and the preacher. He dies 
And the Bible records that on Sunday morning, Jesus raises up from the dead with all power in his hand to prove once and for all that no matter how unjust your circumstances are, injustice will not have the final say. Jesus raises up from the dead so that you and I could be free, free from the power of sin and death, free from the power of either or thinking, free from the power of darkness and free to live in the power of the Spirit of God, free to have our minds changed, but our neighborhoods changed too, free to have our hearts transformed, free to have our society transformed, free to surrender ourselves, not only for God's grace to touch our hearts and save our lives, but for God's grace to infuse every area of our existence for God's glory and for God's own purpose so that we would be able to flourish. And so I want to invite somebody who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ forgiveness of your sins to do it today you can do it today prayer counselors will be available for you right to my left to your right here in the auditorium and for those who are online just put in the chat I want to be saved but for the rest of us who've already made that choice who've already been touched by the fountain of God's grace and we've already surrendered our lives we've already been filled with the Spirit of God, I want to invite us to re-surrender ourselves, to put ourselves on the altar again, to present our bodies, our bank accounts, our whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Let's pray together. Eternal God, how grateful we are for your goodness and for your mercy. We give you praise because you're a good God. You're good to our souls, but you're good to our society. You're good for our spirits, but you're also good in our substance. We put our hope in you not only eschatologically, but also existentially. We, we not only hope for the second coming of the Lord, we also hope for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Save the person who hasn't surrendered to you. Draw them to you with your loving kindness. And for those of us who you've already put your claim on, those of us who've already surrendered our hearts this day, we commit to resurrender ourselves, to allow the light of your truth and the warm embrace of your spirit to touch parts of our thinking and our doing that we haven't quite opened up. Do it for your glory, do it for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. 
people of God, say amen.